0: Good morning. Uh, My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Uh, As you're turning to uh, Romans 1, verses uh, 24 through 32, I want to uh, have you do a bit of imagining. Imagine that you are a census taker uh, or some other sort of representative, and you have to come up with some way to uh, divide all people, some sort of population set, into two different groups. And you have options about how you're going to do that, they don't have to be equally divided. You just have to uh, find a way to fit uh, everybody into uh, two different uh, population sets. So you could do men and women. You could do Republicans and Democrats. You could do Jews and Gentiles. You could do uh, righties versus of Whatever it is that you want to do, you have an opportunity to do. If I was doing this exercise, here's how I would do it. I would, on one hand, put those who like Luby's Cafeteria, on the other hand, I would put those who uh, don't like, uh, maybe even despise or hate, Luby's Cafeteria, and uh, I think pretty much the population would uh, would split somewhere down the middle, not necessarily an equal number in each category. Now, don't think that there is a third category that I haven't mentioned, uh, that is uh, those who just have never been to Lubie's. Really, I just consider that a subset of those who hate Luby's. Uh, as uh, ex- uh, exemplified by a conversation I had recently with uh, Zach and Katie, uh, and so Casey and I went out to dinner with uh, Zach and Katie, and I was telling them about this illustration that I was going to use, and uh, Katie said, I've never been to Luby's, and, uh, and so I suggested that she go and try it sometime. Maybe we'll do a double date there, and her look on her face suggested that I mind my own business. It was not only that she had never been there, it was kind of a badge of honor, of superiority or something like that, kind of like uh, whenever Tim will mention that he's never been to Arby's or something uh, like that. It was very much this sort of uh, a principled uh, never having gone there. And so if I were to uh, poll the audience, which I won't this morning because I'm sure there would be a lot of people who would find themselves in the I like Lubies." But also, they're kind of a subset of that in which I'm ashamed that I like it. And so I won't have anybody throw un, thrown under the bus uh, this morning. Uh, but kind of this is, uh, this is how I would divide it. And I live in a house that's divided. And so I really like lubies. I'm just kind of being vulnerable and transparent with you. Uh, and, uh, and my wife, uh, does, don't judge me. That's not something you can judge. Uh, my wife does not uh, enjoy lubies. For me, lubies reminds me of my childhood. And uh, and so, so many of the places that I enjoy are just nostalgic for me. And, uh, and so, for me, that was where we would often meet uh, my uh, grandparents. And uh, we would meet them for lunch. We would have lunch with them. And so, it was an opportunity just to see uh, my grandparents, who I uh, loved. And so, uh, nostalgia kind of outweighs some of the maybe qualitative deficiencies of, uh, of lubies, Whereas Casey, my wife, has different nostalgic uh, memories. And so she was actually there as a kid and someone had a near-death experience and had to be carried out on a stretcher into an ambulance. And so that's kind of her nostalgia. So that's left kind of a, a, a bad memory, a bad taste in her mouth, uh, if you will. So I live in this house divided, but uh, Casey is a good wife, and so over the past uh, four and a half years that we've been married, she's agreed to go with me to Luby's a, a couple of times. We've probably been uh, maybe three times or so uh, over the years. But one time, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, uh, she actually surprised me. So she was very sweet, uh, sacrificed her own preferences, and she went and she got Luby's uh, from a drive through which is an invention I, that Luby's when I was a kid did not have. And so she went and got, uh, got lubies. By the way, this is the most times that I've ever heard lubies said in a sermon. I heard it every week as a kid. Uh, there'd be a joke by the pastor about beating the Methodist to lubies, but I've never actually heard it in the actual sermon. Hopefully, this will eventually tie into our text, but uh, we'll see. So uh, Casey goes and gets me uh, this as a surprise. She's very sweet, and, uh, and I begin to eat it, and I'm very excited until I realize something is off with the fried fish. Like, really really off with the fried fish like so bad that even after I'd brushed my teeth and done mouthwash and all that I could still taste something there that should not have been there literally the very next day at the office uh, at the church I uh, I go into the office and uh, I remember the taste and I start dry heaving literally there in my office I told a lot of stories about dry heaving I think um, but uh, but yeah this is I think literally as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm thinking about this uh, experience, I start remembering this, and uh, it, I can almost taste it uh, again, and so it was so bad. If I was a cynic, I would think maybe Casey poisoned me in order to never have to eat uh, lubies again, but I don't have any proof of that, but if I die with like a Luan platter in front of me, you know. You know what really happened, and, uh, and so, uh, so anyway... Uh, This is kind of my last experience at Luby's. I have not been back since because uh, I was nearly poisoned by the experience. I think we all, uh, if we look back upon it, have these things that uh, we thought we loved, that we thought we wanted, these desires, these delights, uh, that uh, whenever we finally got them, we chased after them, when we finally got them, uh, we found that they destroyed us, they hurt us, they poisoned us. And that's what our text is about uh, this morning Uh, that the Lord is going to, as a result of our craving, as a result of the fundamental uh, sinful desires of mankind, that the Lord is going to turn people over to those desires. He's going to give them exactly what it is that they're asking for. He's going to give them what they're craving until they choke on it, until it poisons them. And the particular poisoning that we're going to see in our text today deals with the God of this age. There are all kinds of different gods of this age that you could look at, individuality, uh, consumerism, whatever it might be. But there is probably no God that reigns over this fallen world culture like sexuality. And that's what our text is going to deal with today. Our culture worships Aphrodite. And so we're going to need grace if we're going to not only hear His Word, but embrace it this morning. So I want to spend a little bit of time uh, in prayer before we dive into the text. Let me first ask you just to pray for yourself. That the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is undivided and undistracted. That He would do the same for those that are around you, whether you know them or not, your husband or wife or children or parents or friends or neighbors or strangers. The Lord would give us as Parkway, a collective ability to hear his word this morning, to not be unduly offended by it, to be broken in light of it, and then to experience faith and repentance and all those good gifts. And then lastly, would you pray for me? that The Lord would give me boldness and confidence and joy. As we consider uh, these weighty matters. So, Father, we do ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you might unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, we pray these things even as we sung just a moment ago, because you are good and you do good and all of your desires and all of your uh, hopes and, uh, and plans for us are motivated by deep love and compassion and grace for your people. And so we pray in your son's name. Amen. We'll begin in Romans 1 verse 24. We'll look at uh, 24 through 25 together. Paul writes, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So I want to begin with this, uh, this word, therefore. As we talked about last week, one of the interesting things about this section in Romans, really uh, you could look at the entire letter of Romans, it's just, it's Densely packed. Each argument is interwoven with the other, such that you can't just remove one little thread of the argument. They all kind of are tied in and dependent upon each other. So, what we're talking about today is really just a culmination and continuation of what we talked about last week. Uh, And so, you can't divorce the two passages. So, what I want to do is I want to go back and just read through uh, what we talked about last week and quickly summarize that uh, and then catch us up to this week. So, Last week, we considered verses 18 through 23, in which Paul writes, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so last week we saw that God's wrath is his active and settled response toward all that is evil. And so As a result of that, what we think of wrath really reveals what we think of sin. If we think that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, then we haven't understood the heinousness and horror of sin, that sin is something which is deserving of God's wrath. And if we want to deny God's wrath, not only have we misunderstood sin, but we've also misunderstood God's love because God's love demands His wrath. Because you are always wrathful when something that you love is defaced or distorted or oppressed or beaten down. And then we also saw that at the root of all sin is a rejection of the truth of God's godness and his goodness. To the fundamental sin, the fundamental sin of all humanity is a rejection of the fundamental truth that God is worthy of all of our affection and all of our attention. But, the text says that we trade our Creator and treasure creation instead. We trade the substance of joy for the photograph of a portrait of a shadow. These light, trivial things. And then we talked about last week, as a result of this, we become more and more and more like what we worship. We worship these idols, and these idols are blind and deaf, and so we begin to take on characteristics of spiritual blindness and deafness. We become like what we worship. And that was last week. This week what we want to do is continue on with this theme of the wrath of God being revealed and move away from the what and the why of His wrath being revealed into the how. How is it that God's wrath is going to be revealed in response to this tragic exchange? And so I want to begin by pointing out there is this pattern that's woven throughout our entire text. We kind of began to see it Uh, brought to light uh, last week in our sermon. And then this week, we're going to see the culmination and consummation of this pattern. And this pattern is going to consist of three exchanges and three divine responses in three steps. Three exchanges, three divine responses, and three steps. Step one that we'll see over and over is that human beings exchange God for what God has made. We prefer the creature or creation to the creator step two as a result of that as a consequence of that God hands us over to what we prefer so step one we prefer creation to the creator step two God hands us over to our preferences and step three we act out externally and even sexually a dramatization of this internal spiritual condition of fallen humanity Namely, this horrendous exchange of Creator for creation. So we'll see it uh, a number of times. I'm going to put a few of these up on the board. Uh, Exchange 1, verse 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then you can see God's response in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. In the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Exchange 2, verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then you see God's response in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Exchange 3, verse 26. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. God's response in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so we see this threefold pattern that we exchange God, and so God gives us up or over to our desires. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you might be familiar with this pattern actually occurring a number of times within the context of the Old Testament. This is not just uh, merely a Gentile problem. Uh, We've talked uh, before last week about how this text in Romans 1 is more geared towards Gentiles uh, with chapter 2, more geared toward uh, Israel. This is not just a Gentile problem. This is a mankind problem. This is a universal problem. So we see this same uh, language of exchanging and desiring and God handing people over to desires even within the history of Israel. In Numbers 11, Israel has been delivered from Uh, Egypt. They've been delivered from slavery. And, uh, And this is one of those examples over and over and over again where they grumble, where they mumble, where they moan, where they complain against the Lord. And so in verses four through six, now the rabble that is among them had a strong craving, Relate that word craving to the uh, idea of desire that we've seen in Romans 1. And the, uh, the, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So God responds, and He says to Moses, In verses 18 through 20, and say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, who will give us meat to eat. For it was better for us in Egypt. Think about that. They're saying it's better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? So think about what's going on here. Israel forgets all that it does have. It has freedom from slavery. It has fellowship with the one true God. It has uh, bountiful food in the form of manna, and yet it focuses on what it doesn't have. Cucumbers and melons. Not even like really great food, like tacos and lasagna or something, but cucumbers and melons, which I think are like two of the worst fruits. If I get a fruit cup and it's full of melons, send that thing back. If there's any cucumbers, I'll send that thing back. But Israel wants more. They want more than manna. They want more than freedom from slavery. They want more than fellowship with this infinite, inexhaustible fount of goodness and grace and promises of land and blessing and offspring and all of these things on and on and on you can go. And they crave, and their craving is never satisfied. And so God gives them what they ask for until they choke on it. And that's what Paul is saying that every human heart does. This isn't just an Israel problem. This this isn't just a first-century Gentile problem. That every single one of us, we saw it last week, we trade the fountain of living water for a trough, for a feeding pool, for a latrine full of stagnant, putrid muck and mire. And since we delight in the filth, God fills our cup with even more. And we drink thirstily, even as our bodies are poisoned by it. That's what's happening in these verses here in Romans 1. That mankind craves, mankind desires, mankind lusts. And God turns us over. And then we act out physically this dramatization of this spiritual exchange of God's glory for scraps. Let's look at verses 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their uh, error. So before we get into this passage, because it deals with such a controversial issue that is homosexuality, I want to give just a few opening clarification or, or pastoral words. Uh, and, and the first one being, if you are someone in this room that struggles with de- these desires, or you have a loved one that struggles with these desires, let me encourage you and remind you that there is hope to be found. This passage in particular that we're looking at in Romans 1 is about condemnation because the entire passage is about condemnation. But we don't read this passage divorced from the rest of the book, which leads us to the hope of the gospel. So don't read this in isolation from the rest of the letter. And also, don't forget that the entire point that Paul is making here is at the root. All of our desires are rooted in this fundamental rejection of God whether those are homosexual desires or heterosexual desires or non-sexual desires, whatever it might be, they're all the same. Uh, they're all related to the exact same underlying sickness or disease, which is a heart that treasures God's things rather than God Himself. Second, I want to say that the historic church has had no uh, ambivalence uh, or seen no ambiguity in the biblical text as it relates to homosexuality from Judaism through the early church, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, all of the dominations of Protestantism, up until really our generation, there has been no debate whatsoever about this. But that is unfortunately not the case with uh, even many so-called Bible teachers or Christian pastors, whatever it might be, capitulating on this issue. And it seems like in our current landscape, there's really only two options. It seems like you have to be uh, really affirming of this particular sin and, uh, and lifestyle, or you're seen as hateful. Biblically, though, those aren't the only two categories. That's a false dichotomy. That there is a third way, and that is uh, the way in which the church is to walk as we speak the truth uh, in love. As we speak both God's Word of judgment and also God's Word of grace. As we speak both of the righteousness of God from Romans 1, 16 through 17, and the gospel of God, and also the wrath of God. Third, I just want to mention that even though there has been a very unified conviction of the church on this topic, that the church has dropped the ball when it comes to the way that we've handled the conversation historically. Uh, that is, rather than speaking the truth in love, there has been a whole lot of truth and not a lot of love. Rather than being both judgment and grace, there's been a whole lot of judgment and not a lot of grace. And, uh, and so uh, I want to say hopefully what we do this morning is walking that line where, well where we speak the truth but also do so in, in love. And then lastly, uh, just uh, one last caveat, and that is Zach mentioned this before, but we are spending an entire week of theological equipping uh, next week. Uh, on this so we can really dive into uh, all of the different uh, related texts to, uh, to this subject. One of the things that we're going to see as we talk about uh, this is homosexuality is really not Paul's point. And our goal in preaching is really to stay as tethered as possible to Paul's main point in the text. And so when we're teaching, though, we have an opportunity to kind of chase some rabbit trails that we don't have Uh, in preaching. So I'm going to lean a little bit on that, and let me encourage you uh, to do whatever you can to get yourself and your family to theological equipping uh, next week. So with all that said, let's try to get to Paul's point. What is Paul's point? I said his point is not really homosexuality. So what is his point? In order to see that, I want us to go all the way back to the garden, all the way back to uh, the, the very beginning of the Bible. And one of the first things that you see In the garden is a wedding, as man and woman are joined together. And then if you were to flip all the way from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible into the book of Revelation, you would see the same thing. You would see another wedding that's taking place. You would see what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've used the term before of an inclusio, which is a bookend, a literary technique in which an author will use something one time and then use it another time, and everything in between is related. In a sense, you could say that the Bible itself is an inclusio with this idea of marriage. But not marriage itself, not like what Casey and I experienced. Rather, marriage as a sign, marriage as a symbol, marriage as a portrait or a picture of something beyond itself. So what is that thing? Well, we see it throughout the Old Testament that it's a picture of God's intended relationship between man and himself. Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Hosea two sixteen, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, or my Lord. So you see here, marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage was created as a portrait. And it's painted on the canvas of creation in order to say something fundamentally true of who God is and how He is to relate to mankind. Sexuality, thus, is this picture. It's a physical picture pointing to spiritual intimacy between God and man. Thus, throughout the Bible, you'll see uh, idolatry is likened to adultery. Idolatry is this form of spiritual adultery. It's spiritual infidelity. That's why Israel is uh, constantly going to be condemned by the prophets, uh, and the language is going to say, "Because they played the harlot or played the whore," depending on your translation. We were created to delight in God, as husband was created to delight in his wife, and yet we have run to other lovers. That's the biblical storyline that comes up over and over and over. And this, this picture of marriage is going to be fundamentally essential for us if we're going to understand why Paul mentions homosexuality here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that an inversion in our worship leads to a perversion in our sexuality. We saw the inversion last week. We talked about it quite a bit that God created man to rule over creation. And yet a creature comes to mankind and overrules God, rejects God. Man rejects God and wants to worship creation, as we saw last week, even creeping things, herpeton in the Greek, reptiles, even serpents in a garden. This is the upending or inversion of order. And this inverted worship leads to perverted sexuality, since sexuality is intended as a picture of worship. That's going to be Paul's point. So before we really single out why does Paul talk about homosexuality in particular, I want to look at what he says about it. So if you're not sure, if you're just, uh, maybe you're new to the, the faith, maybe you've never really studied this, uh, you're, you're, you're just kind of, uh, kind of putting your finger out and kind of testing the breeze, reading blogs and that kind of stuff, you're not really sure what the Bible really says about homosexuality, consider what Paul writes here. He calls homosexual desire dishonorable passions in this passage. Just in this passage, he says that it's against nature. He calls it shameless acts and errors deserving of a due penalty. From this and uh, all the other passages that we'll discuss in theological equipping, it should be clear that homosexuality is inappropriate. It's incompatible with Scripture. As with any and all sexual sin, it's a distortion of God's created order and the purpose and picture of marriage. Now, there's all kinds of objections that someone might bring to that. If someone doesn't think that the Bible uh, is going to condemn homosexual uh, behavior, uh, there's all kinds of objections. We'll deal with some of those objections in theological equipping next week. We'll actually deal with quite a few of them, but I want to deal with two of them in particular uh, this morning because this text is going to really deal with Uh, with those two. So, one of the first objections is that what will really, when Paul is critiquing homosexuality here, he's not critiquing homosexuality in general, he's critiquing a particular form, a particular type of homosexuality. Uh, Therefore, uh, according to this, uh, he's really talking about uh, forbidding that which is not consensual. So, non-consensual homosexuality or abusive homosexuality uh, and so in which case, maybe consensual homosexuality or non-abusive homosexuality might be um, uh, pro- uh, proper. But here's what I want you to notice. Just look at the text here. Notice what the text says. It text, the text references men and other men, not just boys. This is not just pederasty or something like that. And women with other women, not girls. And there is this res- reciprocity and consensual desire The text says that they're consumed with passion for each other. That's as explicit as we'll get uh, this morning. In other words, Paul's point here is not just to highlight certain types of abusive or non-consensual homosexuality. His point is not particular types of homosexuality, but homosexuality in general. But a second objection might be, what does he mean by it's contrary to nature? Don't we see in nature some examples of homosexual behavior Uh, or something like homosexual behavior even in the animal kingdom. You have certain primates, you have certain sheep, you have certain penguins uh, that engage in something that's uh, sort of akin to homosexual behavior. So how can this be contrary to nature if we see it in nature? So what I want to do in response to that is remind us in the context of what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about created order. He's going all the way back to the garden. He's not saying... That nature is necessarily what you see, but nature is instead what God intended to be. He isn't referring to nature as we now observe it, but instead as it was designed and created originally when God said it was good and very good. We need to bear in mind that all the creation that we see, all the nature that we see is faded. Everything that we have seen is a post-fallen creation. We're only seeing something which has been, according to Romans chapter 8, subjected to futility. Creation itself has been pressed down. Creation itself bears the marks, the scars of sin. And so the question isn't, do we see this in nature? The question is, what does Paul mean by nature? And Paul means as it was originally created. He's referring to creation. So he's saying, by saying it's against nature, that it's against God's original design and decree. So now we've seen what Paul says about it. He says that it is sinful. We've seen some of the objections. Now it's time for us to really address this all-important question that I think will unlock the meaning of the text. And that is why homosexuality? Why does it go to homosexuality? Why not some other sexual sin like adultery or something that everyone has always agreed on as being uh, particularly uh, depraved, Uh, something like pedophilia or something like that? Why not some sort of non-sexual sin like murder? Or the things that the prophets continue to uh, critique and condemn like pride or envy or greed, something like that? Why does he write about homosexuality at all? Well, certainly not because this is uh, Paul's personal soapbox. He doesn't have some sort of Freudian obsession with it. He addresses it three times in 13 letters. So it's not like it's some sort of personal... Uh, vendetta that he has. It's also not because this is the worst of all sins or particularly egregious more than uh, than than other sins or anything uh, like that. It's not the unforgivable sin. Again, the church has not done well of speaking both truth and love in this conversation. So why? Why is it that he goes where he goes? And this was fascinating to me when I first learned it uh, a few years ago and, and again it really the entire passage began to open up and I began to understand not only this text but last week's text in a way that I never had before and so I hope it does the same for you if you haven't already seen it so in order to, to really uh, dive into this I want us to remember what we said earlier remember that sexuality and marriage are intended to mirror worship sexuality and marriage are intended as this portrait or this picture that shows us how we are to relate to our creator. So it makes sense that when Paul is talking about a rejection of the creator, that he uses a sexual sin. But why not adultery? Why not premarital sex? Why not any of a a number of other examples? And the reason the reason that Paul focuses on homosexuality is not because it's the worst sin. Please hear me say that it's not because it's the worst sin. It's not even because it's the worst sexual sin. The reason that he uses homosexuality is because it is the best illustration of the tragic exchange that he has just communicated in the previous verses. Homosexuality, better than anything else, displays this trade of creator for creation. That's a really big claim, so let me try to back that up. So we've seen that mankind, in sin, essentially re- rejects God. That's what all sin begins with, a rejection of God. A creature is worshiping another creature or creation rather than the creator. And again, this is essential for us to grasp because homosexuality is going to mirror this exchange in a unique way that other sins do not as clearly portray. I think we would all say that God and man are both alike and unalike, right? There are certain ways in which we are like God. Uh, Mankind was said to be created in the image of God, And yet also there are a number of ways that we are fundamentally unlike God. Uh, And so He is the Creator. We are created. uh, He is omniscient. We are limited. He is omnipresent. uh, He is omnipotent. uh, He is uh, immortal and eternal. All of these sorts of ways that we are unlike Him. So we're like Him in certain ways, and we're unlike Him in other ways. All right? The same thing is true of men and women. We are like each other in a number of ways, right? We both share in a common humanity. We're also unlike in a number of ways. You probably don't need a lot of examples. I try to think of a really funny example, but uh, some people defy all stereotypes, like Tim. So, just, just always fun to throw him under the bus. So, God and man like each other and unlike each other man and woman like each other and unlike each other that is going to be essential for us to grasp if we're going to understand what's going on here in idolatry in inverted or distorted worship this is what the creature says this is what you and I say we say forget that which is unlike me that is god i'll take something which is just like me another created being i a creator i'm sorry i a creature reject my creator in order to have another creation. I reject that which is unlike me. I want instead to be united to something which is like me. So can you hear the hints of homosexuality in that? In homosexuality, a man, for instance, says, forget that which is unlike me, a woman. I want to be united to that which is just like me, another man. That's why homosexuality in particular is going to mirror this exchange that we've been talking about. See, in all sexual sin, we see little perversions of the gospel. If marriage is intended to paint a picture of the gospel, as we talked about last last year in Ephesians 5, and as Zach mentioned uh, in theological quipping last week, then any distortion of the image of marriage is a distortion of the meaning of marriage. Adultery suggests that we can worship God and something else. Polygamy suggests that we can have more than one God. Pornography suggests that we can have the benefits of relationship with God without actually having a relationship with God. On and on we could go, but homosexuality in particular best portrays this tragic exchange in which a creature rejects its creator to worship something else in creation. It's a confusion of categories. Like fits together with unlike, kind of like magnetic poles. Creatures are to worship creator and men are to be united to women. That's Paul's point here. His point isn't homosexuality itself. His point is homosexuality as an example, as an illustration, as a picture. His point here is the same point that he's made uh, in the previous week. His point is not to attack any particular symptom of sin, but instead to continue to critique the root sickness, which is pictured by idolatry. The root sickness is not homosexuality, The root sickness is that we have distorted and inverted worship, which leads to distorted desires and perverted sexuality. And that distorted sexuality is itself part of God's punishment on mankind. That's an important thing to grasp from this text. It's not just that God judges those who are sexually perverse. It's that sexual perversion itself is a form of God's judgment. That's what it says there. This becomes this vicious cycle of sin. Paul writes that they receive back the due penalty for their error. The divinely ordered punishment for sin is to be handed over. We see that over and over. To be handed over to the power of that sin. To be left to its consequences. And then let's see where he goes in verses 28 through 32. As he moves on from homosexuality as an example into a number uh, of other examples. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. of all sin the root of all of this ruin that mankind experiences is the rejection of God they do not see fit to acknowledge God he says the same thing over and over and over again to show just how pervasive man's depravity really is and the pattern plays out again man ignores God so God unleashes mankind and tells them to chase after the sin that they love until They choke on it as a result, their minds become unfit, debased, worthless, disqualified their bodies, their hearts, their minds, their wills. All of these things are mired in the tragic effects of the tragic exchange of sin. And then Paul goes from there to list out this what's often called a catalog of sin or a catalog of vices, which are just uh, 21 different expressions of sin. So he's given one example in homosexuality. Now he goes to 21 other examples of how this one fundamental sin has branched off in all of these uh, directions of sin. And so we won't uh, have an opportunity to go through every single word here. So I just want to give a few hints for understanding most of these are self-evident. Most of these sins are self-evident. So I just want to instead give us a way of thinking about a, the list as a whole. Uh, and so first, uh, thing to recognize is this, not, this is not intended to be exhaustive or comprehensive. He's not intending to give you every single illustration uh, of sin. There could be hundreds upon hundreds of other uh, examples that he might uh, give us. Instead, these are just a handful of ways that sin plays out in the human heart. That's the first thing to notice. He gives 21. He could have taken those 21 away and given 21 others and taken those away and given 21 others. The second thing to recognize is that these types of uh, lists were really common, even within uh, extra-biblical literature, going all the way back to uh, Plato, the philosopher, not the sculpting clay. And, uh, and so he was the, the first to kind of invent this, uh, this idea of the catalog of vices. Uh, one of my favorite examples is from uh, Philo, which was a, a Jewish scholar uh, around the first century, uh, and he had a list of over 140 of these uh, vices that are listed. And so imagine if we had to preach through that, we'd be like still reading uh, the list at this point, miss the Super Bowl tonight. Uh, and so the third thing, so we have uh, first, it's not intended to be exhaustive or comprehensive. The second thing, this was really common in extra biblical literature. If you're living uh, in, the, uh, in the Roman Empire in the first century, you are familiar with this category, this, this style of writing. The third thing to recognize is that these lists are really common not only in extra biblical literature but in biblical literature itself they're common within uh within scripture jesus uses these where he talks about out of the heart come and then he lists a number of different things one of the most famous examples of these which is not only a catalog of vice but also a catalog of virtue is galatians chapter five which deals with both the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Again, probably those aren't intended to be comprehensive or exhaustive. In other words, uh, since these were common in biblical and extra-biblical literature, first century readers would have been really familiar with such lists. And they wouldn't have uh, felt the need to overanalyze every single word which is what some commentaries try to do. They want to, to, to parse out, why did he mention this word and not this word and this word and not this word? That's not the way that we're intended to read this. If I write a letter to Casey and I say, I love you, I treasure you, I adore you, I don't expect her to spend all of this time getting out a dictionary or a thesaurus and looking up, what's the differences between adore and love and treasure and cherish? Instead, I'm hoping that by using all of these uh, synonymous terms, That overlap. I'm hoping that the collective weight of it hits us. That's what Paul is intending to do here. There are patterns in the text. The first four words all end in the same two letters in Greek. Some of the words are alliterative. They start with the same uh, first letter. Some of them rhyme. uh, But in general, that's not Paul's main point. Paul's point is simply this, that the consequence of sin is more sin. The consequence of this one fundamental sin, which is the rejection of the trading of a creator for creation, the consequence of that is more sin. That it's going to branch out in all of these different ways. That these sins are all just symptoms of the same underlying disease. When the heart trades the creator for creation, this is some of the chaos that results from this. You might think of this kind of as a, like a WebMD article listing various symptoms of some sort of disease. I might not mention every symptom of the disease. And not every person that's suffering from the sickness gets every single symptom. A few weeks back, I, I talked uh, about uh, getting the flu. And, uh, and so it was miserable. Laid in bed like 46 out of 48 hours, something like that. I hate laying in bed all day. It was absolutely miserable. I hate feeling bad all day. Uh, but just as I started to get better, then Casey caught it. And I hate whenever my wife gets sick. And then Larkin caught it. And, uh, and that's even worse, right? And so my little baby uh, is sick. But what's interesting is though Kay, uh, Larkin and I both had a 103 temperature, Casey never got a temperature. She had the same sickness as we did, and yet she was missing one of these really fundamental symptoms of the sickness. And so Paul's point is not that all people manifest their sin in all of these ways. You probably couldn't ever pull somebody up here. I was going to make a joke about how Zach actually exemplifies all of these, but... Uh, That's not true, obviously. You probably couldn't find anybody who exemplifies sin in every one of these ways. But again, that's not his point. His point is these are just characteristics. These are examples of how sin affects the human heart, and it branches off in different directions in different people. His point is that there is no sniffle or no sneeze of sin that is not tied to the underlying root sickness of having hearts and minds that treasure something other than God Himself. That's the point. Now look at verse 32, the last uh, verse that's up there. It's interesting because Paul says that they know God's righteous decree. Think about that in light of the fact that we're talking about Gentiles, Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic law, but Paul is saying somehow they know. In other words, not only is it true what we talked about last week, that there is a a sense that there's a shadow of God's existence in creation there's also some sort of shadow in our conscience that man suppresses not only the knowledge of God in general, but even this knowledge of God that consists to some degree of morality, he suppresses both creation and his conscience, which is interesting in in light of the way that Paul argues here. Skeptics might say, show me proof that God exists. And last week we saw that Paul basically says, look around. There's all the proof that you ever need. There's mountains and waterfalls and trees and valleys and hills and dogs and cats prove the existence of the devil and all those kinds of things. Just as there's a shadow of God's existence in creation, there's an innate sense in which some level of sin is clearly known and understood. Now, Paul doesn't say how, he doesn't say how they know or how much they know, just as uh, that there is some sort of uh, a sense in which they do. There is some sort of baseline morality that is rejected. So Cain, whenever he kills Abel, he couldn't say, I didn't know. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. Just because thou shalt not kill hadn't yet been given to Israel. And for Paul, the fact that some might object and they say, I don't have this innate sense of right and wrong. This feels right to me. That's no excuse. For Paul, that's just further evidence that you have suppressed the truth, that you have rejected God's revelation It'd be kind of like saying, I can't perceive something, but then admitting the fact that you have uh, dulled your senses. You've plugged your ears and then complained that you can't hear. You've closed your eyes and held them shut while arguing that you can't see. And Paul says, not only does mankind practice this sin, but we take delight in it and try to sell it to others. He says, we not only do it, but we give approval to those who practice. We invite others into our sin with us. Come and see this thing. We found, as I used to try to lure my friends to lubies, like the adulterous woman from Proverbs trying to seduce the simple, we entice others to join us in our sin. You see what he's saying here? Sin is never satiated in solitude. There's always this longing to drag others into it. Sin is suicidal, but it's not just suicidal. It's murder-suicide. That's what sin consists of. We're not content to corrupt ourselves. We want to take others with us. What's really interesting is the opposite is also true as well. As sin is not satiated in solitude, so glory and joy are never satiated in solitude. C.S. Lewis and one of his uh, one of my favorite things that he ever wrote, he wrote that joy isn't fully consummated until it's expressed or shared with others. So if you're watching the game and you care about the game tonight and your team scores, there's this sense in which your joy is not complete until you stand up and scream or high five or hug or whatever it is that's your tradition uh, in your house. When you get engaged or find out that you're pregnant, there's a sense in which uh, your joy is not complete until you've shared it with your loved ones. So you've brought them into that. It's why I talk about Casey and Larkin. Zach talks about pirates and magic and Why Tim always talks about his Prius and obscure restaurants. I was going to make fun of Carl too, but yesterday was his birthday, so in honor of that I will refrain. The point is that mankind was created with this innate desire to not only delight in worship, but to spread that desire and worship to others. Whether that desire is good or that desire is evil. That it's never satiated in solitude. There is always this longing to draw others into it so now we get to the end of verse 32 and it's kind of depressing that's kind of the point of this section of romans the next few weeks are going to push us down even further so that whenever we get to the good news of romans chapter 3 that it will feel all that more good to us if god's wrath isn't bad news then the gospel isn't very good news so the bad news kind of just keeps getting worse and worse and worse as we unravel our depravity depravity And show how prevalent it is. And there's a way that we can read this. We read this passage today. And we think, okay, the response is just to do the opposite. right? The Bible says that being disobedient to parents is sin, so I'll just obey my parents. The Bible says that murder is bad, so I won't kill anyone. Deceit is bad, so I won't lie, then I won't be guilty. But that's obviously not the proper response because this isn't merely something that you will do. It's something that you have done. It's something that is bound up into your very heart. Besides, even if you were to do that, even if you could somehow no longer do any of these examples of sin, you're only dealing with the symptoms and not the root sickness. Kind of like taking Tylenol just to mask the headache and never dealing with the tumor that lies underneath. That the fundamental problem of the universe is that mankind takes things into our own hands and fashions our own idols. How is it a solution to take our own salvation or our own sanctification into our own hands? That's just a reflection of the problem in the first place. So that's not what we're to do. That's not how we're to read this text. That's not an implication of the text or an application of the text. Just do better. Just change. Just do the opposite of all of these sorts of things. So what is the implication of the text? It's simply to kneel down before the righteousness of God and to honor Him and glorify Him. And we do that simply by trusting. By trusting that He is all sufficient and satisfying and that he has made provision for you in his son. And that's it. That's why we spent an entire week on two verses in Romans 1 16 through 17, because you can't read verses 24 through 32 or 18 through 23 in isolation from that foundation of the gospel. We can't read about the wrath of God without the message of the righteousness of God and the power of God and the gospel of God and the goodness of God. That God is putting the sin-scarred world back to rights and establishing His kingdom through His Son and by His Spirit. That is the only hope. There is no other cure. There's no experimental treatment. The Bible is saying that you need a righteousness transplant and there is only one compatible donor and His name is Jesus. And of those who have tasted and seen that He is good, we beckon others then to come and join us at the table. So let's pray and then we'll fix our eyes on Jesus as we prepare for communion. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, a word that is difficult, a word that presses upon us, a word that presses upon. One of the idols of this age in human individuality and expression and sexuality, and so I pray for a tremendous amount of grace, Lord. That your word would water our hearts and cause us to experience the grace of faith and repentance, that we would know that you are all satisfying and sufficient and where you have commanded, you equip and empower your people to walk in faithful, faith and repentance. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful that you're good and you do good, that you're a good father who gives good gifts to your children. And we celebrate the greatest gift in your son as we partake of his bread, of his body and blood. So we pray these things in his name. Amen.